ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Thursday, November the 23rd. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. A four-day ceasefire in the fighting between Israel and Hamas is due to begin late today, allowing dozens of the more than 200 Israeli hostages held in Gaza to be freed. In exchange, about 150 Palestinians held in Israeli jails will be released. Both sides will let women and children go first. For the families of the Israeli hostages captured during the Hamas rampage almost seven weeks ago, the wait's excruciating, as correspondent Adam Harvey reports from Tel Aviv. Nitza Korngold personifies the anguish felt in Israel. Seven members of her family were kidnapped by Hamas, including her daughter-in-law and two grandchildren aged three and eight. She welcomes the release of hostages due to begin today. We are very happy, but also very afraid. We don't know, you know, if they come or not. Do you, do you have any sense that, uh, that uh, your, your grandchildren will be in this first group? I hope so. I don't know. We don't know nothing. We wait to the phone that said, come on, you must to go to the hospital to see them. We don't know if it will be today, tomorrow, Saturday. This deal is for 50 women and their children. More than 230 were taken, including Nitz's son, Shoham. The decision to bring some back and leave some... Yeah. What, what's that but done? But also to... my son will not come back. Yes. So we're going to fight together, all the people. The solidarity remains amongst yeah. all of the families. Yeah. yeah. We are together like big family and we're going to fight together. Yaden Gonen's sister, Romy, was taken from the Nova Music Festival on October 7. She's 24, so under the terms of this deal, she won't get out. I'm not losing hope, because anything can happen, and we learned it in the hardest way. Me specifically and my family, but I think most of the families are happy and welcoming for each and every one that will cross the border and get to see the sunlight again. These hostage families steer clear of the politics of the deal, like the length of the ceasefire or the exchange of 150 Palestinian women and children. I, I don't care. I don't want to uh, talk about politics. I just want my family back and all the people. We want to be, you know, I want to be, again, mother and grandma, and that's it. That's what I want to be, to be a small woman in the kibbutz. And to, to, I want to take my, uh, our children and uh, grandchildren to the pool to play with them to read the stories. That's what I want. It's anticipated that the hostages will be freed in small groups, 10 each day, at the same time as Palestinian women and children are released from Israeli prisons. This is Adam Harvey in Tel Aviv for AM. In Gaza, there are mixed emotions about the temporary ceasefire deal that's been reached between Hamas and Israel. The pause will allow the delivery of more humanitarian aid to Gaza, but the conditions of the truce prevent those who've fled from the northern parts of the Gaza Strip from returning to their homes. Nicole Johnston reports. For the families of Palestinians held in Israeli jails, the next few hours will be filled with nervous anticipation. Samira Dawat is hoping her daughter, Sharouk, 
who's been in an Israeli jail for eight years for an attempted stabbing, will be one of the expected 150 Palestinians freed. Since the beginning of the war, I didn't sleep until 2 a.m., waiting to hear news about the swap deal. Yesterday they called me and said they have a deal, but I was waiting for the vote in the war cabinet, so I will know it is real. I hope it will happen and nothing will disrupt it. Israeli human rights groups say there are usually more than 5,000 Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails. Kadara Fares is the head of the Palestinian Authority's Commission for Prisoner Affairs. He says it's likely the prisoners will be released in groups of around 30 people per day during the truce. The release of a number of our prisoners during the war is a very important thing. This deal can signal a start to a change in the general atmosphere of this war. Internationally, the hostage deal is being viewed as a temporary circuit breaker in the war. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has thanked the lead negotiating country, Qatar, and is calling for more aid to Gaza. We do welcome the agreement reached overnight. And as I said, this is something that we have consistently pushed for and is a crucial first step as we try and resolve this situation and, indeed, the humanitarian <laughs> crisis. Jan Stoltenberg is the Secretary-General of NATO and he says Gaza's civilians urgently need help. I welcome the agreement between Hamas and uh, Israel that uh, should uh, lead to the release of hostages and uh, pause in the hostilities and uh, enable uh, the delivery of humanitarian aid. Turkey has condemned Israel for its war in Gaza but hasn't cut diplomatic ties with the country. Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan says it's time for a permanent ceasefire to stop the bloodshed. The announcement of a four-day humanitarian truce and the agreement to exchange hostages and detainees, albeit in limited numbers, are all positive developments. I hope these steps will lead to a permanent ceasefire, which has always been our main focus. Inside Gaza, there's relief that a deal has been done. This is journalist Shadi Abu Ahmed. The people are looking forward to this uh, ceasefire. Four days of quietness, not explosions, no noise, no killing, no death. Enough. The Israeli killing machine is non-stop. Every five minutes you have an explosion, you have people dying. While people in Gaza wait for the ceasefire to start, they worry about what will happen when it's over with Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu already making it clear that his military campaign against Hamas will continue. Nicole Johnston there. The federal government's massively expanding a taxpayer-funded scheme to subsidise and underwrite renewable re energy projects. It's an admission that Australia isn't on track to meet its climate target of having 82% of Australia's power coming from renewable sources within seven years. David Spears is the ABC's political lead and the host of Insiders. David, what's the federal government doing to get Australia back on track? Sabra, Chris Bowen today will unveil a huge expansion of what's known as the Capacity Investment Scheme, or the CIS. There's always an acronym with climate and energy schemes. This one was initially set up between the Commonwealth and the states nearly 12 months ago after years of debate about how to get more dispatchable power into the market as the old coal-fired generators um, shut down. So today's announcement will see that CIS dramatically expanded from its initial ambition, which was to deliver six gigawatts 
gigawatts. Now it's 32 gigawatts of clean energy in storage by 2030. So that's the equivalent of about half the national energy market today. It's a lot of new clean energy in storage the government's hoping to incentivise. The way this scheme works, the government enters a contract with an energy company, giving them much greater certainty about their investment. If, if a new clean energy project, for example, is losing money because prices are below an agreed floor, a government subsidy kicks in. If they're raking in healthy returns because prices are so high, well, taxpayers do get something back in return. Importantly, the expansion being announced today is for both storage, so batteries, pumped hydro and so on, and the actual variable project. So it will now be able to be used for uh, wind and solar farms, getting more of them off the ground as well. And most energy experts do agree that it is going to be the most efficient way to boost the rollout of renewables and storage without adding too much to energy bills. The cost? Well, we don't know. The government says if everyone knew what it was willing to spend, it wouldn't be in much of a negotiating position with these energy companies. So rather conveniently, the government isn't able to tell us what this big escalation of the CIS is going to cost us. David, the government made a big deal out of legislating its emissions reduction target. The energy sector is a big part of that. Is this the last political roll of the dice to hit that target? Well, it's a big move, but not the last. We're still to see the government's plans, for example, on uh, electric vehicles to encourage more uptake and new vehicle emissions standard. It's still finalising. But this is the big play from the Albanese government to get its targets back on track. Labor, you'd recall, legislated its emissions reduction targets, 43% by 2030, net zero by 2050, soon after it came to office. This was a, a big moment hailed as a symbol of a new political era. It also set an ambitious target for renewables, 82% renewables by 2030. That's not legislated, it's not in law, but it is fundamental to the government's plans. It can't back away from any of these targets. So today's announcement is both a concession that that 82% renewables target is not on track. It's also a plan to get it back on course. The government is doubling down on renewables and storage. It's doing so in a way it believes is the most efficient way to do that and it's preparing for a fight with the coalition, which would prefer to go down the path of nuclear power, although at this stage it can't say either what that might cost or exactly how it might work. These climate and energy wars, it seems, Sabra, are far from over. That's the ABC's political lead, David Spears. The federal government's facing a fresh High Court challenge less than a week after it rushed emergency powers through Parliament to deal with people who'd been released from immigration detention. The new law imposes strict new conditions, including curfews and ankle bracelets, on 93 former detainees. However, lawyers for Chinese refugee argue the measures are extreme and punitive and should only be imposed by a judge. Political reporter Matthew Doran has the details. Matthew, what do we know about this case? Well, Sabra, the challenge has been launched by lawyers for a man known by the pseudonym of S-151. According to documents lodged in the High Court late yesterday, he was told via a phone call from an official from the Home Affairs Department on Sunday that he would be subject to a curfew, meaning he couldn't leave his house between 10pm at night and 6am in the morning, and that he would have an ankle bracelet fitted to monitor his whereabouts. Now, in launching this High Court challenge, his lawyers have picked up on arguments that have been fairly widely expressed by a number of 
legal experts over the last few days. They're arguing that these restrictions are overly punitive, that they result in an extreme deprivation of liberty, that these are the types of restrictions you'd see imposed on someone as a result of a criminal conviction, not someone subject to an administrative process. And that means something like, in these circumstances, a visa issue. What we know about this man's circumstances is that he arrived in Australia back in 2001 on a student visa. He was then on a number of other visas before his employment visa was cancelled on character grounds a couple of years later. Those grounds being that he was convicted of an offence. Upon being released from prison, he was put in immigration detention. He'd applied for a permanent protection visa, which was rejected, but he was found by officials to be owed protection by Australia, the argument being he couldn't be deported back to China. So he found himself in limbo, not holding a visa, but also not being able to be deported, therefore being detained in an immigration detention facility indefinitely. And Matthew, how do we get to this point where the government's facing another challenge? It all stems from legislation which was rushed through Parliament last Thursday with the support of the Coalition, an emergency response to the release of a cohort of 93 people from immigration detention following another High Court ruling. In that case, which is the catalyst for all of this, the High Court found it was unlawful to indefinitely detain someone if there was no prospect of them being deported. That's led to this group, among whom there are people convicted of murder, rape, child sex offences and drug smuggling being released into the community. Now, the government faced significant political pressure from the opposition here and it rushed through this legislation to try to convince the community that they were taking their safety seriously. But it is an odd situation with the government trying to legislate its response to this ruling while also not having the High Court's full reasoning, something it won't get for a couple of months. And that's led some to suggest that this patch-up job could be subject to another patch-up job in the next couple of months. It's now also subject to a high court challenge and we'll wait to see whether the court hears it. Matthew Doran there and a government spokesperson says as this matter is before the court, it would be inappropriate to comment. The Reserve Bank Governor, Michelle Bullock, is warning more interest rate rises might be needed to tame inflation, which she says is now homegrown rather than coming from conflicts overseas. In her second last speech of the year, Ms Bullock said domestic cost pressures are persistent she's threatened to use what she calls the blunt instrument of interest rate hikes again, with inflation expected to stay higher for longer. Our senior business correspondent Peter Ryan was in the audience at last night's speech and we spoke earlier. Peter, Michelle Bullock sounds pretty concerned about Australia's inflation rate. What are the chances of another interest rate rise to tame inflation? Well, Sabra, she was sounding very ominous last night and, if anything, Michelle Bullock looks more hawkish on inflation than a predecessor, Philip Lowe. Doesn't look like a pre-Christmas hike in December. Money markets only see a 7% chance of that. But the trigger could be the next quarterly consumer inflation reading on January the 31st. If inflation remains stubborn at the current annual pace of 5.4%, a rate hike looks likely. Last night, Michelle Bullock said domestic pressure were proving persistent. Labor costs, energy, rents, insurance, going to the hairdresser, dentists, dining out where inflation's running hot. So with inflation looking higher for longer and maybe outside the Reserve Bank's 2 to 3% target for another two years, Michelle Bullock flagged a substantial policy response. Decoded, she knows rate hikes are painful but conceded the blunt instrument of interest rates won't resonate with everyone. I receive letters from people who are finding it difficult to make ends meet and I speak with organisations who are assisting struggling households. Everyone is seeing prices for goods and services rise strongly 
but this has a particularly severe impact on low-income households. This really emphasises the need to get inflation back down. I also know that interest rate rises are squeezing the finances of households with a mortgage. But while the board recognises that there is a wide diversity of experience, the bank's statutory objectives are economy-wide objectives. And our key tool, the interest rate, is, as we say, it's a blunt one. So the board must therefore set its policy to serve the welfare of Australians collectively. That's Reserve Bank Governor Michelle Bullock speaking to an Australian business economist's dinner last night in Sydney, along with Peter Ryan and Pete. Michelle Bullock's only been in the job as the bank's governor since September. What is she doing to put her stamp on the RBA, especially after a major review earlier this year? Well, Sabra, Michelle Bullock says she 100% supports the recent overhaul of the Reserve Bank and she wants to see a more deep and informed deliberation at board meetings uh, next year down from 11 to 8 and a clearer explanation of how rate decisions are reached. Michelle Bullock also wants to see a better culture and leadership internally at the RBA, which remains a highly conservative institution where some veterans prefer to speak rather than listen. Peter Ryan. In remote northwest Queensland, a plague of native rats is causing havoc, not only on the land, but also at sea. Good rainfall and lots of food have caused a population explosion, but now hundreds of the long-haired rodents are turning up dead along the picturesque coastline. Julia Andre reports. It's the stuff of nightmares. Come for a ride in town here this morning. We got a rat plague hit town. Rats been drowned. Thousands of them. Hundreds of rats washing up on local beaches near Corumba in Queensland's Gulf Country. At first, the rodents were only on land, but now they're climbing on board fishing boats. Last night, I would have thought that on the vessel at any time there may have been up to 100. Commercial fisherman Brett Fallon reckons 1974 was the last time there was a rat plague this big. Trawlers docked in Corumba have already suffered thousands of dollars of damage with rats chewing through electrical wiring. But there's also something odd going on. Hundreds of rodents are washing up dead on the beaches and it's creating a stench. People are really getting perplexed. There's a stench all along the riverbank there and they're thousands dead. And last night the river was truly alive. It was a phenomenal sight to see. Gemma Probert, who owns a local fishing business, has a theory. Most of them are out in the water, like they'll just jump in and swim out and that's why we've seen them out on the sand island and everything. But um, yeah, I think once they get out there and they can't go anywhere and they die, then they wash back up on the beach. So it's a bit smelly up here at the moment. There have also been reports of rats attacking and eating mud crabs. Experts like Professor of Conservation Biology Peter Banks are worried the rodents are adapting to the Gulf's environment. Given that they're in a kind of new place where the resource opportunities are different from the kind of classic arid zone where they probably, you know, where they where they will retreat to eventually, I'm just not sure. Further south, rat numbers are also causing havoc at the airport in Julia Creek. The local council CEO Trevor Williams says staff are working overtime to scare off large prey birds, hoping to catch a feed from their airstrip. You know, half an hour before a commercial flight is due to arrive, and and they run. Up 
up and down the airstrip like mad people. One's got a, a gas gun and one's got a, uh, a shotgun with bird fright. Back in Corumba, Brett Fallon can see no end in sight. This beautiful savannah environment is a new habitat from and their ability to do damage is unbelievable. The Queensland Department of Agriculture and Fisheries says it's up to the local councils to deal with the problem. That report from Julia Andre and Adam Stephen. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. You might have noticed the sales are on again. The Americans may have come up with the Black Friday frenzy, but Australians are embracing it more and more. Today, business reporter Nassim Kadem on how much we're really going to spend during a cost of living crisis and what that might mean for our inflation problem. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.